if I die, it will be in the most glorious place that nobody has ever seen. I can no longer feel the fingers in my left hand. The glacial Antarctic water has seeped through a tiny puncture in my formerly waterproof glove. If this water were one-tenth of a degree colder, the ocean would become solid. Fighting the knife-edged freeze is depleting my strength. My blood vessels throbbing in a futile attempt to deliver warmth to my extremities. The archway of ice above our heads is furrowed like the surface of a golf ball, carved by the hand of the sea. Iridescent blue, wedged wood, azure, cerulean, cobalt, and pastel robin's egg meld with chalk and silvery alabaster. The ice is vibrant, bright, and at the same time ghostly, shadowy. The beauty contradicts the danger. We are the first people to cave dive inside an iceberg, and we may not live to tell the story. It's February, in the middle of what passes for summer in Antarctica. My job for National Geographic is to lead an advanced technical diving team in search of underwater caves deep within the largest moving object on Earth, the B-15 iceberg. If I had known that diving into tunnels inside this giant piece of ice would be difficult, but I hadn't calculated that getting out would be nearly impossible. The tidal currents accelerated so quickly that they've caged us inside the ice. We're trapped in this frozen fortress, and I have to figure out how to escape. There are no training manuals or protocols to follow. When you're the first to do something, there's nobody to call for help. The most qualified cave diving team in the world with experience and skills to rescue us is right here, trapped inside the B-15 iceberg. My husband, Paul Heinerth, our close friend, Wes Skiles, and me. The glazed tunnel we're swimming through is magnificent. 300 feet of ice presses down upon us from above this narrow passage, groaning with emphatic creaks and pops that signal its instability. The current is gaining momentum and the garden of life on the seafloor beneath the iceberg bends like palm trees in a hurricane. Frilly marine creatures, brilliant orange sponges, worms that look like Christmas trees and vibrant red stalks double over and shake in the flow of the tide. Wes is trailing behind Paul and me, attempting to film our exploration for National Geographic, and I sense him losing ground in the current. Our planned one-hour dive is stretching out of control, and I'm not sure how long I can tolerate the cold. Can we survive two hours? The 15 crewmates on our battered research vessel Braveheart are likely unaware of the drama unfolding in the water. They only know that we're overdue. If we don't return soon, our captain will have to call for help into a radio handset but no one will hear him. We're beyond the range of communications, utterly alone against the wilderness, and there are no other capable divers on board. Our colleagues will search the horizon through binoculars. They'll launch the ship's helicopter and ferret feverishly over the endless white ice of the Ross Sea, but they'll know that nobody survives long in these indifferent waters. We would be remembered at best as gutsy, but more likely as lunatics. The incredible pain in my hand begins to yield to a numbness that threatens to hijack my resolve. I know that as my core temperature drops, confusion will follow. When pain subsides, death is often lurking. I plunge my frostbitten hand into the doughy seafloor to pull myself forward, and columns of clay rise like smoke. I'm simultaneously hot and cold, and my chest is heaving, my lungs burning. 
There's a beam of daylight, soft and elusive, about 300 yards away, and I begin kicking as hard as I can, latching onto anything on the seafloor that could edge me closer to it. I can hear Paul and Wes's heavy panting, but my mind is turning inward to my own survival as I gain one inch of ground at a time. How does a dying person know when it's over? They say that your life flashes before your eyes, but that isn't happening to me now. All I can think is about escaping from the water that I love more than anything else. I've spent my life immersed in a relationship with this element that nourishes and destroys, boys up and drowns, that has both freed me and taken the lives of my friends. Now, I have come to my moment of reckoning. My life began in water, and I refuse to accept that it may end here. You're listening to stories, poems, music from The Creative Process. To hear our full interview with Jill Heinerth, visit The Creative Process Arts, Culture, and Society podcast. This podcast is produced by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Thanks for listening.